And we're about to read scripture, and that's not just scripture, but it's the sovereign God speaking to our hearts as well. And so, in honor of the God of the universe speaking his word to us, would you join me and stand and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab a pew Bible there and turn to page 6. 667, 667. We want you to follow along as God speaks to us through his word. 2 Corinthians 5.14, we'll read to uh, chapter 6, verse 1. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Let's pray. Father, we come and and we just rejoice that we are not alone, that you will not abandon us, but more than that, your presence has transformed those of us who have trusted Jesus. You've made us new creations, new creatures, with new hearts, with new desires, with new abilities. And Lord, we're not new creations because of anything we've done but because what you have done through your son, he who became, who was without sin, became sin, so that we who are with sin might become the very righteousness that you have. What a gift, what a transformation, what an exchange. But Father, now the challenge is to live for you, who has done all this for us. And I plead with those who are here, and I plead with you, Lord, that if any are, do not know you and are not new creations yet, we urge and we beg and we plead that they would give their hearts and their lives, their sins and their regrets to you today through this message. May your word go forth with life-changing power. Amen. Well, this morning we want to continue in our January worship series that we are calling Stand in the Gap. And uh, if you were not with us last Sunday, that's all right. Let me just kind of give you the framework for this series. What we are doing for the month of January that we began last Sunday, we'll do today, and we will conclude then next Sunday taking these three Sundays is really my, my heart's desire is just to share with you kind of the the state of our church, share with you where we are as a church and kind of the challenge before us as a church and and kind of where we need to go as a church a little bit and kind of wrapping that around this idea of stand in the gap. And you say, why is that? Why did you pick that idea, that theme, if you will, uh, kind of that, that motto even for our whole church for the whole year of 2015? Because the reality is, as we shared last Sunday, we have some gaps in our church as we strive to fulfill the mission that God has given to us, a mission which we have identified in this way, in igniting a passion to follow Jesus Christ. That's our mission as a church. That is what God has given to us 
what we are seeking to accomplish of leading people, helping people, igniting a passion in people through Jesus Christ that they would become Christ followers. What is a Christ follower? How do you define a Christ follower? As you sit there right now, how would you define your life as a Christ follower? Well, we've kind of defined it this way. It's people who know Christ. It's ones who grow in Christ, show Christ, and go with Christ. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That is what we are about. And as we strive to fulfill that, the reality is we have some gaps in that that we need to address. I mentioned a few of those last Sunday. I'll mention a few of them again here today. We have a gap in our general budget. As I said last Sunday, our giving is down about $10,000, $11,000, or 3.5% in 214 from what our giving was in 2011 and 2012 and 2013. So we're down a little bit in that. Uh, in fact, based on our giving, our, our finance team uh, met with our leadership council yesterday, uh, Saturday morning, and they proposed, recommended a, a budget, uh, general budget for our church of around $287,000, which our leadership council uh, approved, and which will be presented to you as a church next Sunday night. I invite you to come and be a part of it uh, during our Ignite Praise and Prayer time at 5 p.m. and down in the multi-purpose room. We'll present both the general budget and uh, our missions budget. And you're always welcome to be a part of that, and we'd love to have you, except we're going to do more than just hear about numbers. We're going to pray about those numbers, because God is the Lord of those numbers. Let me say that again. God is the Lord of those numbers. Amen. Amen. And so he can provide, and of course he uses people and the generosity and the giving of people to provide for his church. And so we will meet next Sunday night at 5, and we will praise God for his work and what he's done in the past. And God has been faithful in the past, has he not? Amen. And then we will hear the numbers, uh, give time for some questions, and, uh, and then we will spend time praying, asking God to bless, asking God to provide, asking God to help us in our church to really fulfill our mission. And so I encourage you to come and be a part of that. As I said last Sunday, we have a gap in our worship attendance. Uh, we're down a little bit from the previous two years. Uh, we're down about 3%. Uh, we have a gap in, in just our corporate prayer life as a church. Uh, to be honest with you, as I admitted last night, I haven't done the best of job of leading us in that. And so we're going to change that a little bit. And as I, we already mentioned, we're going to have the first of four of these quarterly Ignite Praise and Prayer Times. Uh, I'll talk more about this next Sunday, but uh, we are going to launch and go into 40 days of prayer. You see a little insert in that if you're wondering what that is. I'll talk about that more next Sunday. 40 days of prayer as a church family. Uh, we have a gap even in this auditorium. I don't mean you as a people, but the building here. It's dated. It needs remodeling, renovated desperately. And uh, we want to redo the stage. We need to redo the lights. The stage lights are pathetic. I walk over here, I'm in the dark. I walk over there, I'm in the light. You know, and it's just... The ambiance here is it's not the best. It, it was great in 1985 when it was remodeled at that time. You should have seen it before. And in 85, this was a great remodel. And we haven't done a, we've done some minor revisions since then, but basically it looks the same as it did in 1985. We need to remodel this auditorium. We have a gap in that. Uh, and I, I've, I've said this in the past, I, you know, one of my personal beliefs, I think we have a gap in our church's name. Now, I know for those of you that are longtime members here, Glenwood may hold some emotional value to you and sentimentality to you because, well, this has meaning. Glenwood has meaning because you're now here. You've been here. But for those outside of our church, Glenwood doesn't mean a hill of beans because there is no Glenwood community, there is, which was that name was based on Glenwood community, which used to be the community of this back in 1940s when we got the name Glenwood. We need... I, propose we need to change our name. So we have some gaps. And God's challenge to us, as I presented last Sunday, is found in Ezekiel 22:30. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. And so that is our challenge of two, for 215 as a church body, to see yourself 
as that one man or that one woman who will stand in a gap before God on behalf of our community and beyond. But standing in the gap, as we talked about last Sunday, means going all in as Christ followers. As I tried to think of an illustration of that, I kept coming to this one. It's the difference between a chicken and a pig at breakfast. If you eat bacon and eggs for breakfast, both the chicken and the pig have a part in producing your breakfast. But whereas the chicken only makes a contribution, the pig went all in. You get the drift. You could say, in other words, we as a church body, we need to be pigs for Jesus. <laughs> we need to go all in. This morning, here's what I want us to see together from the text that Pastor Chris read, from, read to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to see, as Christ followers at Glenwood, we must be compelled, though, to stand in the gap. We must be compelled to do this. And I, as your pastor, cannot be the one to compel you. Oh, I may compel you to stand in the gap for a day, a week, or even a month. But the Lord has to do the compelling. And specifically, the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the ministry of reconciliation as our mission. That has to be what compels us. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. This verse is also translated, For the love of Christ constrains us. Or for the love of Christ controls us. These words, compel, constrains, controls, they're all words to describe a pressure that produces an action. And for us, that action is to stand in the gap. In other words, what Paul is saying to us here is that the magnitude of Christ's love for him personally and for the world at large compelled him to live for Christ wholeheartedly as an act of grateful worship. I love how another translation puts it. The love of Christ leaves me no other option but to live for him. We might say it this way, the love of Christ leaves me no other option but to stand in the gap. Here's the point, we must be compelled to stand in the gap. And in this passage, Paul gives us a motivation for doing that. He gives a measure of how to evaluate ourselves for that, and he gives us a mission as we stand in the gap. And all of them are centered around this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul defines as this message of reconciliation or the ministry of reconciliation. So let's break this down a little bit. Let me show you this. Number one, may the love of Christ be our motivation. May the love of Christ be our motivation for standing in the gap. Again, Paul says in verse 14, very simply but very powerfully, for the love of Christ compels us, constrains us, even controls us. You see, for Paul, the love of Christ had become his guiding, motivating principle. He had started to see everything in his life through it. Why? Because as he goes on to write in verses 14 and 15, that if one died for all, and who was that one who died for all? Who was it? Jesus Christ. For if that one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying our motivation to stand in the gap is based on the reality that we've experienced the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lives have been radically changed because of the love of Christ. Therefore, our motivation is to live for him. Now, what does this mean? Let me break it down to be compelled by the love of Christ. First of all, it means that Christ's love captures you 
and then it controls you. You see, Paul never seemed to get over his salvation experience. And he never seemed to forget how the love of Christ captured his life and radically changed his life. Right now, just contemplate with me the immensity of Christ's love for all the world. Paul says in verse 15 that he died for all. Many of you, most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with John 3.16, where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Think about your coworkers. Think about your neighbors, your friends, family. Think about people who live all over this world. God loves them all, and Christ's death is sufficient to save all. But also contemplate with me here for a moment the intensity of Christ's love for you personally. Not just all the world, but for you. And let that reality, that God loves you, capture you and compel you to stand in the gap. Yes, Paul writes that Christ died for all, but Paul also writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loves you. Christ gave himself for you. Meditate on that thought. Meditate on the intensity of that love for you. And when you do, it will not only capture you, but it will control you. Control you in a way that it becomes your guiding principle, your motivation for how you live your life. It will leave you no choice but to live for him. By the way, this, that is Christ's love for the world, for us personally. That's our motivation for giving. Listen, we don't give because God has needs. Listen, if you, right now I'm reading through the, you know, the, the, the gospel of Matthew. Just remind it again as I read through Matthew. Our God multiplies fishes and loaves of bread. Our God even pulls a tax payment out of a fish's mouth. So we don't give of our resources, of our time, of our finances. We don't give because God has needs. We give because in giving, we declare his value to us and our love for him. You ever think about that? What does is, what is your giving say about the value of Jesus to you and your love for him? So first of all, compelled means that Christ's love captures you and then it controls you. Second, it means Christ's love changes your perspective of people. You see, people, Paul, the Apostle Paul here saw people in only two categories, saved and lost. In Christ or without Christ? Paul says in verse 16, look at it. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't see people according to the normal categories that the world around us defines people by. Such as rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, white or black, blue collar or white collar, educated, uneducated, and so forth. When we look at people, we don't see them mainly in terms of socioeconomic status or ethnicity or education or this or that or how this world would define people. No. We have a different perspective on people, about people. In 1912, his word got back to England that the unsinkable Titanic had sunk People with relatives, as you can imagine, began to panic. So a gigantic chalkboard 
I'm told, was set up in downtown London with two columns on the chalkboard. The two columns simply read, saved and lost. There had been people from all classes of society on that ship way before the movie came out with Leonardo and Kate, of those two classes of people. But on that night, everyone was either saved or they were lost. Listen, that's the same perspective we see people with now. Are they in Christ or are they without Christ? Are they saved or are they lost? Because when it's all said and done, listen, folks, that's the only perspective that matters. Does the love of Christ capture you? Does the love of Christ compel you to stand in the gap? My prayer is that may the love of Christ be our motivation as individuals, as Christ followers, as a church congregation. Number two, may the sacrifice of Christ be our measure of standing in the gap. Look what Paul writes in verse 14 again. He says, for the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. Now drop down to verse 21. Look what Paul writes here. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Two words out of these verses characterize Christ's sacrifice for us. First of all, Christ's sacrifice was total. It was total. Christ died for us. And it was total. How should we respond to that? Well, our response ought to be in some measure the same. Think about it. Jesus did not just tithe his blood. Man, he gave it all. It was total sacrifice. Therefore, our response should not be a token portion of our lives or just the leftovers of our lives, but everything. We should, in other words, almost think of it in this way, we should offer God a blank check with our lives with no strings attached. Verse 15, Paul's own testimony of this. He writes that those who live should no longer live for who? Themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. Paul also writes in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a blank check that you offer to him that is wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so the first thing about Christ's sacrifice we see here, it was total. Christ died for us, but not only that, the second word that characterizes his sacrifice is it was substitutionary. Now, I know that's a big, hairy, long word to write out, even to think about and understand. But don't let that word scare you, because it's packed full of meaning, rich meaning, powerful meaning for us. Basically, it's the idea that Christ was our substitute on the cross. Christ exchanged places with us. You might call this the great exchange. In fact, in my Bible, underneath verse 21, that's what I have written in quotes. The great exchange. It's the greatest exchange that you can ever participate in, be a part of in your life. Where on the cross, Jesus took our place of condemnation. That is, he became our sin, and he gave us his position of privilege. That is, we became his righteousness. So think about what this means. In our sin, we were separated from God, get this, as his enemies. That was all of our problem from the day we were born. We were enemies of God, separated from God, alienated from God. But through our substitute, we have been reconciled to God now, not as his enemies, but as his friends. Jesus is the one who died in the place of sinners. He's the one who took the payment of our sin upon himself so that we can now stand before God as his friends, reconciled to him. You say, how is this possible? Well, Paul tells us how in verse 18. Look at it. He says, now all things are of who? Now all things are of God, he says. 
who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is that God is the author of reconciliation and that his son Jesus Christ is the agent of reconciliation. God is the one who reconciles us to himself through his son Jesus Christ. This is why Paul writes what he does in verse 21. For he made him, that is God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. He was sinless, but now he made him who knew no sin to be sins for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So what do we bring to the table then? What do we have to offer? Man, we are simply the acceptors of reconciliation. As William Temple once said, the only thing that I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. You say, how can then I be reconciled to God? How? How can I be reconciled to God? Can I put it in just the simplest terms possible? Believe. Believe what God writes here in verse 21 about yourself and about Jesus Christ. You say, that's all? Yeah. Believe. Now that word believe, there's a lot more than what we typically think about believe. It's more than just head knowledge. It's, it's head knowledge that transforms the heart. That is, you trust in Jesus Christ and you trust in His work on the cross now to reconcile you to God. Perhaps you need to believe and be reconciled even today. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're, you're evaluating your own relationship with God and you're like, man, I don't know that I've ever been reconciled. In fact, when I look in my life, I think I'm an enemy of God. I think I'm far from God. Man, then be reconciled to God. Believe, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today and be reconciled, be redeemed to God as his friend through the person of Jesus Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. In fact, today can be the day of your salvation, as Paul says in the next chapter, verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Perhaps this is your day to be reconciled. And when this happens, and for all who have had this happen in your life, when we are reconciled, let me tell you, man, get ready to be blown away. When this happens, we have an entirely new identity. This is the beauty of what Paul now writes here in verse 17. Look at it. He says, therefore, if anyone is in who? In Christ. You believe in Christ. You trust in Christ for your salvation. Paul says he is now a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New creation. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit. You have new desires. You are given a new life. It's what happens when we are reconciled to God. And it also means, get this, we also have a new mission in life. Which brings us to our final point. May the ministry of reconciliation be our mission in standing in the gap. Paul says in verse 18 that God himself has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, church, that's our mission as Christ followers. That's your mission if you've been reconciled to God, if you're a new creation in Christ. You ever wonder, why am I here? Why am I alive? Why doesn't God just take me home? Why has God left me on this God-forsaken earth, it seems like? Why am I still working at the lame old job that I have? Because of this reason right here. Wonder what your purpose in life is, your mission in life? This is your mission in life as a Christ follower. This is our mission as a church. 
Our mission is all about the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel declares that Christ died in our place so that we can be reconciled to God, but it doesn't do them any good if they never hear about it. This is the mission that God has given to us as a church. Our church is God's primary instrument. All churches of God. The church is God's primary instrument for reconciliation. Listen to me. Churches make Christ followers better than any other organization on the planet Earth. This means our focus in ministry at this church will always be the message of reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To meet people's physical needs, to meet their social needs, without ever addressing their primary need to be reconciled to God is to do them a grave disservice. This is not to say that we don't also meet physical needs. Listen, we do. Why? Because we're Christ followers. And just like Jesus met physical needs, we must as well. But if all we do is meet people's physical needs, we have helped them, we have bettered, to, bettered them, but let me tell you, their benefits are short-term. And we are about eternity. We're about the kingdom of God. Listen, we meet physical. This is why we have a benevolence ministry which you guys have been a part of. You fund it through our Christmas offering. That's how we fund our benevolence ministry, which goes to help people in need, to help people with food assistance, to help them in financial assistance. This is why we, we have done our, our, our uh, just here recently in December, we've done it for several years now, in the, the adopted Christmas uh, families at Christmas, adoptive families at Christmas. It, it's a wonderful thing. I, I, there are times, just this last, this last one we did, in fact, it was, we, we adopted four families, and uh, our, we do it through our, our grow groups, and many of you have been a part of, just here recently, and we buy them Christmas gifts or people in need. We normally connect with the Crestview Elementary School, and that's how we, we find about the families. Uh, we actually adopted two families here in our church this last Christmas as well. And if you could just be a part of that Sunday night dinner when they come in, and, uh, and see their faces light up after, after they get over the, the trepidation a little bit. But about halfway through, after we eat, and, and the gifts they then receive, and boy, it just breaks down all the barriers. And their, their faces light up, and of course the kids. And, and, and it always happens. I always have one family. Always tell me when they come in, well, I, I think... I think we'll save the gifts for Christmas. And I always tell them, that's wonderful. You're welcome to do whatever you do. And it never fails without happening. Almost always. They say that, and by the end of the night, they're opening up all the gifts. <laughs> it's just the coolest thing in the whole world. And it meets their physical needs. You say, why do we do that? Because oftentimes, here's the reason we serve people. We show Christ to them through meeting physical needs. But oftentimes, what we are praying is, God, as we meet that physical need, you open up their heart to their primary need, their eternal need, their spiritual need to be reconciled to God. So understand, when you give financially to Glenwood, you are giving to support this life-changing mission that God has given specifically to our church. Now, let me just give you two implications out of this. Number one, we are authorized to speak for God with the message of reconciliation. Look what Paul says in verse 20. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now what an image Paul gives us here. We're ambassadors for Christ, he says. Think about an ambassador from this country living in another country. He's a citizen of the United States, but he's living in a foreign country. And in that country, he represents the president of this country, and he speaks with the authority of this country. This is where we have to remember that this is not our home. 
This is not our country. Folks, we're strangers here. As Christ followers, we belong to another kingdom. And we're here as ambassadors of that kingdom with authority to speak for that king. Do you realize that we've been authorized to speak for God himself? Blow me away. Paul says that God is making his appeal through us. We implore you. It's as if God is speaking through us. We implore you to our lost friends, lost family, the co-workers. We implore you. And what are we imploring you to do? On Christ's behalf, our, our imploring is, hey, be reconciled to God. God through us is speaking. Be reconciled. God loves you. You say, how much do you? Christ died for you. That's what we're imploring people to do. Think about it. We've been authorized to speak for God with this message of reconciliation, what Paul calls the word of reconciliation. And don't miss the sense of urgency in which Paul says it in chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Paul doesn't say, oh, tomorrow is, next week, next year. And so until next year comes along, live for yourself. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Look what he says. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The urgency in which we implore people is today. And notice the manner in which we speak for God. When Paul says in verse, chapter 5, verse 11, go up to verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And there are some of us here, we're so scared to offend anybody at work. And I'm just thinking, I, I get that. I get that. We don't want to get in trouble at the workplace or whatever. But, you know, when we're on lunch break, coffee break, whatever break, man, we have the authority of God the King who rules over our workplace to speak for God with this message, the most important message of all messages. What are we waiting for? Man, we're not just giving trivial information here. We're proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't just say, ah, take it or leave it. No, we are, we are persuading people to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is the way we approach our neighbors and friends and co-workers who don't know Christ yet we plead with them. We implore them. Listen, you've been authorized to speak for God. The question becomes, do I trust God enough without authorization? Or am I too scared? I have his authority. His presence is with me. What am I scared of? Because number two, man, we're privileged to work with God in the ministry of reconciliation. Look what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What an amazing concept. Working together with God in the ministry of reconciliation. God could have chosen any other means to proclaim the gospel but he has chosen to work with us, warts and all, weaknesses and all, faults and all. And don't overlook the nature of our work with God. This is critically important here. Hang with me. The nature of our work with God, it requires great Endurance in multiple troubles. I want you to see this. You've got to look in your Bibles or look in your notes. Look what Paul writes in verse 4. We're in chapter 6 now. 
verse 4. He says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God or laborers of God, workers of God. And notice what he says next, in much patience. Or literally, that phrase means in great endurance. One author says it this way, endurance amidst adversities is the overarching quality of authentic ministry. In other words, what Paul is saying here is the work of God is not a walk in the park. It's not a stroll on the beach. Standing in the gap takes great endurance in a blizzard of troubles, as one author calls it. Just look what Paul writes. Look what he continues to say here in verses 4 and 5. Look at it with me. It says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. That is truly a blizzard of troubles. From every perspective. You know what Paul's response was to that blizzard of troubles? Great endurance. What a man Paul was. He was constantly beaten, bloodied, mocked by the crowd, sweating, hungry, exhausted, sleepless, and yet he was always enduring, always working, always standing in the gap for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. In fact, Paul's endurance proved the authenticity of his faith and commitment. The fact that he didn't quit, that he didn't curse God for his miseries, but instead endured, testified to his genuine faith in God. In effect, Paul's endurance declared that the gospel is true. It has made a radical difference in my life. And it declared that Jesus is worth it all. Oh, how I pray that that would be our testimony as we stand in the gap. Speaking for God. Working for God. That we would be willing to do whatever God requires for people to be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. That we would embrace His mission as our mission as we stand in the gap for His glory. Church, do you, do you realize how important our mission is? We, in spite of all of our warts, in spite of all of our weaknesses, listen, we are, we, we are God's plan A for reconciliation. And there is no plan B or C or D. It humbles you, doesn't it? It challenges you, doesn't it? And hopefully it motivates you. And yet, none of this will be accomplished without people who are willing to stand in the gap. Let me close here by just giving you some practical ways in which you can immediately begin to stand in the gap with us here at Glenwood. I only have two of them in your notes, but I'm actually going to give you three. The first way is you can stand in the gap by supporting God's mission financially. Give to Glenwood as an initial giver or an intentional giver or a sacrificial giver. As I've already said, I said it last Sunday, I said at the beginning, that our giving in 2014 was about $286,000, which is down about $10,000 or 3.5% from our giving in the previous two years. Now, listen. That's not a reason to panic. As we mentioned, God is Lord over finances. So I'm, I am not panicking about that as your pastor. I will admit I am concerned. Especially when we really need a budget of around $300,000 to fully support the mission and ministries of our church. So one way. If you call Glenwood here home, this is your church home, you're an attender or member here, one way you can stand in the gap is by supporting God's mission financially as either an initial giver or an intentional giver 
or a sacrificial giver. Let me explain what I mean by those three terms. The initial giver refers simply to a first-time giver. This is the starting point for anyone who has yet to give to the Lord through his local church. In fact, maybe you're here this morning and you started giving for the first time last year or the year before. Listen, that's huge. Because when you have never given to the Lord to start giving, oh my gosh, it is the, it, it's a big hurdle to start giving. And listen, if that's you and you have started giving, man, we, we want to celebrate that. We want to give glory to God for that. Because everybody starts right here as an initial giver where they take that leap of faith, that first step to stand in the gap in giving to God. The second, the intentional giver, refers to someone who gives intentionally and consistently and regularly throughout the year. The key element here is giving has now become a part of your monthly budget. It's a recurring payment just like your other monthly payments, such as your rent or your mortgage, your cell phone bill, your cable bill, your utilities, that you pay whether you are in feast or famine. That's, in fact, that's, that's the benefit of, uh, it's one of the benefits of utilizing online giving, which we now have here at our church, uh, which I, I would encourage you to utilize it. Go on to our website, glenwoodconnection.org, and Click the tab, giving, and, and there you can give online. And one of the benefits of giving online is you can set up recurring giving, recurring payment, just like some of you, maybe most of you, you, you bank online. You pay some of your bills online. You set it up as a recurring payment so you don't miss it. That's one of the benefits of online giving, set up as a recurring payment. It, it just it happens automatically. Um, if you have questions about that, you can see, see Kim. She'll help you out with that. Number three, the sacrificial giver refers to someone who gives above and beyond the tithe. And a tithe is simply 10%. Someone in this category is no longer thinking, what am I supposed to give? But rather, what am I not giving and why? For this person, giving a tithe, get this, is not, it's not the ceiling. Giving 10% is now the floor. And they want to give above and beyond that, even to the general budget. Most of the time, we only think ab about giving above and beyond 10%. We think about that in terms of faith promise, which is a correct way to think about it. Faith promise is above and beyond our giving to the general budget. And so if you give 10% and then you give a little more to faith promise, you're giving above 10%, above and beyond. But do you realize you can, it's okay to give above and beyond 10% to the general budget to help fund our mission and ministries? Of course, we have to grow to that. God has to do a work in our hearts to lead us to do that. And, uh, and so those are three ways. These are simply ways to kind of help all of us evaluate where we are in our giving here at Glenwood. That's one way you can stand in the gap is by supporting God's mission financially. Another way... I need to hurry here. As you can stand in the gap by living God's mission passionately. Living God's mission passionately. Pray for the lost. Invite them to church and share the gospel. Let me just throw out two questions to you to think about. I won't elaborate. Who are you praying for by name right now? Because they desperately need to be reconciled to God. Who do you know by name that is far from God and needs to be reconciled to God? Who are you praying for by name? And when was the last time you invited someone, anyone, to church and shared the gospel? I had a lunch conversation with my dad on Friday. Dad and I were talking about our church real quickly here. In the course of that conversation, I told him this. I said, Dad, yeah, our, our church will not grow unless our people begin to invite. It, it, listen, 
We can have all the programs, resources. We can have a $500,000 budget, and it won't make any difference if we are not inviting, including myself. I, I'm, I'm in this just like you guys are. I, you know, I got to ask myself, who am I praying for by name? Who, who's the last person I invited to church? And we provide tools for you on the back table. It can be as simple as you hand it to, to, to your neighbor, your friend, person you get coffee to, or whatever. But this is something we have to be thinking about continually and evaluating ourselves and, and being, and that's why I say we have a gap in this area. So the challenge is before us. Number three, you can stand in the gap by praying God's mission faithfully. Pray for our church. And, and I've already said, come and pray with us. Next Sunday, 9 at 5 p.m. at our very first Ignite Praise and Prayer Time. Next Sunday, we'll also launch our 40 Days of Prayer, where we will pray for our church for 40 days, beginning on that Monday, January 26th through Thursday of March 6th. This is something we will do corporately, but individually. It's not like we're going to meet here and pray for 40 days where we come to the church. No, on, you know, and we'll provide some prayer guidelines for you as well. But 40 days of concentrated focused prayer for our church. Can you imagine what God might do at the end of that? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for our time together. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of Paul. And we give thanks for this passage that you have revealed to us in your word. May the love of Christ compel us to stand in the gap as Christ followers here at Glenwood. Lord, you know our needs, you know our weaknesses, you know where we need to grow. And so, Lord, we need your grace to do just that. And so while we sing a verse, a chorus, may we respond to you. May we evaluate in honesty before you where we need to confess sin, where we might need to grow in areas of our lives. I pray these things in your name. Amen.